Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> Greetings. Greetings, Earthling. Welcome, Welcome back to Girl the Podcast. How are we doing? How are we feeling? Well, I am on cloud nine because... Ooh. Okay, cloud nine, yes. I'm not pushing it, but I'm like, I was so amped about this. AJ, I drunk texted you this, but you were like already missing your phone at this point. But like, oh, yeah. I think the audience will be excited to know that mm-hmm. when I was out at the club... I literally saw a girl wearing a 1973 shirt from Social Goods, aka uh, going onto the club and being like, yeah, I support Roe v. Wade. We fucking love to see it. And I was like so amped. But I was like, this could be like a weird approach. Like, I don't know. How- I'm like so bad at giving people compliments. So bad. <laughs> so I was like, I'm just not going to say anything. Get you a girl that can do both. Like a girl who can be an activist in the club. Wow. That's a real woman, you know? I couldn't agree more, and I was like, shoot, like, why didn't I think of this for my outfit? We come out with a clubbing clothing line (laughs) that, you know, also does activism at the same time. I'm going to have to really think about this one. Why don't you go, like, network during Fashion Week right now? Go on. But what else happened this weekend besides my phone getting stolen out of my purse? Um yeah, also, if anyone is listening and you live in San Francisco and regular, regularly go to Westwood, my phone got pickpocketed out of my purse on Saturday night. And when I went the next day to go to the phone store and get a new one, the guy told me that there has been people coming in every single weekend with stolen phones from Westwood. So, you know, maybe that applies to five people listening to this podcast right now, but just thought I'd give a PSA because zip up your shit. We love a PSA. So we love a protect the purse moment. So, yeah, because I was, it took me 
five hours in the T-Mobile store to get a new phone. So I just don't want to put anyone else through that. And but I did I did get my phone right in time to watch the Super Bowl. So that is actually huge. Although yeah. okay, well, what are your thoughts on the Super Bowl? Give me give me your takeaways. Um, thoughts on Super Bowl are are these. Joe Joe Burrow is my new crush. He's so hot. Um one of my guy friends was like, this is the last thing she needs, like another celebrity crush. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Add him to the list because, uh, wow, that man is a specimen and he's adorable. But that was my number one takeaway from the Super Bowl. Second was just pure disappointment because as a Bay Area native and a Bay Area sports fan, there's nothing worse than an L.A. team winning a championship. And that sucked, especially because they beat us in the – what is it semifinals <laughs> I don't know um, um I was gonna say the first act so the first act <laughs> here we come again with theater girl and athlete girl reporting to you live on our takes from the Super Bowl other takeaways I loved the halftime show personally what an iconic lineup it really was nostalgic and incredible Although... and oh and I sorry one other thing commercial wise mm. Mm. The Austin Powers reunion commercial was one of the greater things that have ever happened to me. I don't know if I saw. Was this after the sh- like the halftime show? I think so. Oh yeah, that's when I you stopped. I turned you it felt off. It. I was yeah. like, I'm good. Like I'd really just been scrolling like IG for like however long. These people were running towards each yeah. other at full speed with helmets on that don't really protect them. So then right. I was like, I'm good. And yeah, I was like, let's let's do another activity, like watch Paris and Love. So that's where my night turned. But yeah. before that, I have some comments. One, NFL, dear NFL, pay your dancers. Exposure is not enough. I can't with that. Saying and racism at the end of your field when you're not paying your like mostly black dancers is literally just like the most hypocritical bullshit that totally like captures that's not a word encapsulates everything like, well let me teach I you something can't. theater girl theater girl this is a sports hot take that you might not know about the nfl is the epitome of hypocrisy so it just want to put that out there it feels right like i just it's very on brand for them to uh, be hypocritical it's yeah. like at least they're on brand they're consistent but speaking of branding if we're gonna move it over to that side of my rant i just really had a problem with the font on the the stage thing that the dancers were on i still don't really know what you're talking about you said that the other day and i and i i don't know if i nodded and said oh yeah or if i said i didn't (laughs) (laughs) but i don't remember a font like what did it say what are we talking about it was like whatever the like you know how like it was faking like it was sort of like a street scene and like there was different stores oh i think those are actual stores like from inglewood and compton that they like remade they like put like randy's donuts and like the kind of like classic staples in la i think those are oh i didn't know they were referencing anything i thought it was just i think they were well i stand by the font situation we love supporting small businesses yes we do love that though so Mm. i'm just just putting my suggestions out there otherwise i think the cuter thing was like with the super bowl was like after and like obviously we know i don't know the players names besides joe burrow who's not even on the team i'm gonna talk about but there was like a guy that's wife like went into labor like oh i did see that that was cute so cute and like they're like high school sweethearts but like in like the cutest way and he had like the cutest pose you know like 
her supporting him. I was like melting. And he just like ran out of so the stadium cute. after the game. Ugh. I was wow. like, wow. This what, is... a cr- what a crazy day for him. Like whirlwind. He's whirlwind. never going to forget that day. Like that's going to be like the most like iconic. Also, that kid is totally going to get like favoritism being like, you are the Super Bowl like luck kid. Yeah. Like I can't. Well, it's similar to how my dad played professional soccer and he won a championship the same year I was born. And I was like, best year of your life, obviously. I mean. Mostly me, but whatever. There it is. But you know what's great? Okay, here's my like last thing on sports for the moment is like now that this is over, boys like now are back on Sundays. Like, I just feel <laughs> <laughs> like I personally really struggled. <laughs> oh my god. No, that was the most iconic thing you've ever said, and it's so true. Men are gonna be gone on Sundays from September to February. You could literally show up naked on a guy's doorstep and on a Sunday afternoon and then be like, you know what, like now it's not a good time, but like I'll hit you up later. It's crazy. But yeah, a decent Super Bowl, definitely better than last year, I think. Do you remember who performed last year? Mm-mm. Look. Oh, it was the weekend. It was trash. Oh. Trash. Was there any like political moments? trying to think mm, there was um eminem was not allowed by the nfl to take a knee and he did which love I that meant him for him. also to know this sunday night football sports reporter michelle tafoya hmm. she's career switching to a minnesota gop campaign the super bowl was like her last football moment Weird. and now she's pivoting to a political career so that'll be fun to watch but overall, like, politically, I feel like the Super Bowl was not as political as it usually is, which I was kind of disappointed about. <laughs> I love, like, a good political statement. When I saw, like, Kendrick Lamar was going to be performing, he always does the most beautiful, just, like, political statements mm-hmm. through his performances and stuff. And I was just looking for more of that, but NFL was, like, not playing about that stuff, I guess, this year, which is... Very, very interesting. Again, the poster childs of hypocrisy, NFL. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. I'm going to use that as my excuse as to why I'm not into football. Although I did, like I saw like a few weekends ago, like I did like that one game that I watched. But whatever. There's always an exception to the rule with like certain The things. Niners? Yeah, that one. When we lost? I'm so sorry. You liked that game? <laughs> you were in LA for it, weren't you? I was. Yeah, whatever. It's fine. Whatever. That's just me being better. Anyways, let's get into this episode. We want, before we do so, let's talk about some housekeeping moments Mm. because to start, we do have a summer internship. If you guys are interested and can get college credit for an internship and want one for the summer, hit us up. You can go to girlonthegov.com slash careers. Um, And if you're not looking for an internship, but you want to join our community of like-minded political ladies. Sorry, I'm watching a little um, corgi puppy and it's just been a battle. Anyways, um, (laughs) you're hearing that? Wait, that was like the cutest little moment. But yeah, also resume boosters, networking opportunities. Okay, guys, join our brand ambassador program. You can go to girlonthegov.com slash brand ambassadors, I believe. But if not, it's all linked in the episode description. It is true. And what's also true is that the rumor of us having an event in New York on March 12th are true. So 
drum roll please we are super excited that we will be at y7 Flatiron. we are going to be obviously if you know what y7 is doing some hot yoga but we are also going to be doing a live show so yours truly aka me and maddie will be leading a really awesome conversation with Zach from The Next 50, Sarah Haig from Vote Mama, and Brian Derrick, political strategist. So you may be familiar with some of these amazing voices, faces, names, you know, the whole nine yards. And they are going to be walking us through what to expect for the midterm elections, how to prepare, what we need to know, like just making sure we are ready to roll. And of course, like we'll be just like having a great time, making some jokes, doing some things. So Tickets are linked on our website. They are also on Eventbrite. They're in the description. Like, it's just, it's right there. It's like, hey, can you buy me, you know? And bring your friends. And, oh, I did want to say this too, is like, if you're ever like, oh my gosh, like, I love the idea of like going to an event, but I'm like a little intimidated to like go by myself, come solo. So come solo, bring friends, meet new people, like whatever you want to be, you can make that happen. So. Like I said, you know where to get the tickets and we hope to see you there. Last but not least, we have a special offer for you guys for our 21 plus club. You guys can get four bottles of absolutely delicious wine for $29.95. So if you guys follow the link in our episode description to Wink, they have 200 plus wines and it is a wine subscription. It comes right to your door. And like when I say that they're delicious, like I mean it from the bottom of my soul and Four bottles of delicious wine for $29.95 is, like we said last week, an absolute steal. So do not miss out on this opportunity. Go try some of their wines. And if you like it, then you can subscribe. And there it is. Exactly. It's super good. The labels are cute. So it like looks cute on your shelf, which we always love. Little moment, little detail. Whatever your vibe, they've got something. They've got a quiz to like help you figure out like what type of wine you should get. Easy peasy pumpkin squeezy, or should I say grape hey. squeezy? No, that doesn't work. But regardless, no. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. <laughs> D minus. But go get your wink. We have the link in obviously the description. And then, of course, we have a story that'll be going up with that wink. That wink. Oh my God, am I wink? That wink. <laughs> I'll be winking at. Okay. Guys, the wink is in our episode description. <laughs> Wink, wink, nod, nod. Before you guys are like, just absolutely turn us off. Definitely at least take advantage of the twenty nine ninety five for four bottles of wine. I mean, that alone is, again, such a deal. So go try them. They're absolutely delicious. And they come right to your doorstep. I mean, what what could be better? Listening to Girl Only Go to the podcast. But other from that, nothing. And I think this is a great moment to... Introduce our guest. As we get into this episode, we do want to give a trigger warning as to what we're going to talk about. This particular episode focuses on spousal rape, domestic violence, rape in general. We just want to make sure that you guys are very well aware before getting into this conversation that some of what we are talking about could be triggering, especially if you're going to share this episode with friends, family, etc. We also want you to just be very well aware of what this contains and understand that this is definitely a hard topic in general, but a hard topic for, you know, specific people, including yourself or other people in your lives. So just giving you sort of that warning. As we jump into this a little bit further, our guest is the amazing professor, Michelle Dauber. She is also the chair of the Enough is Enough Voter Project, which focuses on making domestic violence and violence against women a voter-focused issue. So 
as we sort of already warned in our trigger warning, this is going to be the focus of our episode and our conversation. We hope you guys enjoy it. Of course, this is sort of the tip of the iceberg with this type of conversation. We have a lot of different avenues that we plan on exploring here, but welcome to sort of the first segment, if you will, of this conversation. So without further ado, here is Professor Dauber. We are super excited to have you on the show, and we are ready to get right into it. You are the chair of the Enough is Enough Voter Project, and we don't know enough about this project. So if you wouldn't (laughs) mind giving us the scoop on what the project's mission is, what the whole sort of story is here. Sure, and thanks so much for having me. The Enough is Enough Voter Project is the only national political action committee that's dedicated to making violence against women a voting issue. So first we target candidates who have a bad track record on these issues, either because they have committed sexual violence or harassment themselves, or because they've enabled that conduct. We think that's absolutely disqualifying for holding any public office. Totally. Second, we're working to ensure that violence against women is on the agenda during elections. We wanna defeat candidates who don't stand with survivors and women For example, if a candidate opposes funding the Violence Against Women Act or votes to pass abortion restrictions that target rape and incest survivors, or if a candidate makes misogynistic or victim-blaming statements publicly. And we also work on legislation that we think will make a difference for survivors. That's amazing. Definitely very necessary, especially after four years of Donald Trump. So there's that. But like we said, you are the chair. So can you kind of give us um, a snapshot into like what that really means and what, you know, your position entails and almost like what your day to day is even like doing doing this work? Well, because we're an all volunteer organization, being chair is a lot less exalted than it sounds. Um, Enough is Enough has a strong board of directors and we have a flat leadership structure for all decisions, um, which we make by consent. We have a division of labor within the board in which I tend to do the public speaking engagements like this one. And I'm principally responsible for fundraising strategy. We all work on organizing and publicly pushing for legislative and policy issues that we want to highlight or against candidates we want to oppose. Another board member, Jenny Hutchinson, focuses on organizing, particularly in Democratic Party circles. And a third board member, Leslie Logan, handles all of our social media. And she and Jenny also lead volunteer engagement. But we're all equals within the organization, and we've worked together as a strong team since 2016. Amazing. Well, speaking of this team and getting involved and, you know, becoming one of these amazing members of the board, how did you get involved? Was there anything that sort of inspired jumping in here? There's always a story to sort of every journey. What What is yours? So Enough is Enough actually grew out of the successful campaign to recall California judge or former judge Aaron Persky. He was the judge in the Brock Turner sexual assault case. Mm. You might remember or your listeners might remember Brock Turner. He was the Stanford swim team member who was convicted by a jury of three felony sex crimes for Mm -hmm. sexually assaulting an unconscious woman behind a dumpster at a frat party. I'm a professor at Stanford and had at that time already been involved for many years in trying to reform Stanford's handling of sexual violence, Mm -hmm. which um, created what I think is a culture of impunity on campus for perpetrators. Yeah. 
So at the time of the Turner case, and still to this day, Stanford has very high levels of sexual violence, about 40% of our female undergrads and a similar proportion of gender nonconforming um, or trans students experience sexual violence during their four years on campus. And that's coupled with an incredibly low rate of reporting. Only about 3% of that violence is ever reported to the university. And even in cases where there's a report, perpetrators are essentially never expelled and not even very often suspended. And this creates an unsafe situation on our campus in which the message is being sent that sexual violence is normalized and assailants are protected. And that was kind of the backdrop when Mr. Turner committed his crimes. And my concern was that his light sentence of just a few months in county jail would send exactly the wrong message to victims. Yeah. And that, you know, even if they had the ideal circumstance with eyewitnesses and DNA evidence and a rape kit and a jury conviction, that privileged offenders like Mr. Turner, who is an elite recruited athlete at, you know, possibly the top college in the country, would continue to be protected by the system. And so... Uh, the women of Santa Clara County decided to fight back and send a message of our own. And our message is that rape culture is unacceptable. And if you do not take sexual violence seriously and treat it as a serious crime, then the voters will hold you accountable. And in a very resounding victory, Persky was recalled by 62% of voters. And that campaign, you know, was a long campaign. It lasted two years and it was exhausting. But one of the positive benefits was that we had this long opportunity to educate voters about the reality of sexual assault. And one of, you know, one of the best tools, honestly, that we could have ever had was the victim's own writing, because now we know that the victim uh, was author and artist Chanel Miller, who was anonymous at the time, but she wrote this very powerful victim impact statement that went viral and it was read by 10 million people. It helped to launch the resurgence of the Me Too movement. And so, you know, even though we won overwhelmingly, there was significant pushback. There was a lot of victim blaming. There was a, there, I had a lot of death and rape threats. And from that experience, we realized that there was a very big need to strongly represent the interests of survivors in the electoral process. And that was the basis for forming Enough is Enough. Wow, that's incredible. And we kind of want to get into just some of the details here about like really all this topic as a whole. And really when it comes to also later, we'll talk more about kind of like policy and stuff that has been enacted or pushed through regarding this topic. But to, before we want to get into our I have a stupid question segment, we're going to start off with what is spousal rape? Is there a difference between spousal rape and non-spousal rape? Can you kind of give us you know the mm -hmm. details on what that all looks like? Yeah, good question. So spousal rape is a type of sex crime that you can think of as second class rape. Uh, rape of a non-spouse is treated one way and the facts of those same rape, if applied to a spouse, would be treated far less seriously or even not as rape at all, depending on the facts. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So it's like, what if these things where it's like you read these words and you're like, this should be illegal. This should be like not a thing, but like somehow it seems like there's sort of a different rubric that is held towards spousal rape versus non-spousal rape. So like, what is the story here? Is there a reason for that? And like, is there a reason it's sort of like looked at as like not as bad? And I'm not saying that's my opinion, but that's sort of the general consensus. 
Well, historically, there are a few primary reasons that have been given to support the spousal rape exception. Um, that is treating spousal rape as less serious. And we heard all of these from legislators during our recent campaign to end the spousal rape exception in California. These are all bad reasons, but anyway, you asked, so here they are. <laughs> Number one, women lie about rape. This is the idea that vengeful spouses will fabricate a rape charge against um, their spouse in order to gain some kind of advantage somehow. And obviously this is offensive and misogynist. Number two, this is also deeply problematic, the need to keep the family together, usually for economic reasons. This is also terrible because this is a family that includes a rapist, a serious felony violence that could well escalate to murder, given what we know about domestic yeah. abuse. Obviously, if a victim has come forward to authorities about being raped, she's seeking help and trying to exit the situation and needs financial and material support not to be told to stay with the rapist for the good of her children. Number three, and this is a related argument, family privacy. This is the argument that if there's a prosecution, the conviction would embarrass the children and therefore be bad. So the family should be sent to counseling and the victim should presumably stay with the rapist, which you know, again, dramatically underestimates the level of violence that yeah. is at work here. Downplay the violence involved in spousal rape, which is a historical legacy of the view that a perpetrator could not rape a woman who had already consented once to have sex with that perpetrator, that there was somehow no real harm being done since, you know, intercourse had already occurred. And then this leads to the fourth justification that marital rape is somehow less harmful than other forms of rape. This is actually diametrically opposed to the research and the facts. The opposite is true. The betrayal of, by a trusted loved one is far more traumatic for the victim than an assault by a stranger who has no pre-existing position yeah. of trust. So, Spousal rape is a straightforward legacy of uh, patriarchy, actual patriarchy. So I know we talk about patriarchy a lot. It's a word that gets thrown around. And when I say this, I'm using it in the technical sense. This is not hyperbole. That is what this is. This is about the head of household, a male, having the absolute right to the sexual use yeah. of the women, the wife in that household. So this is just a direct leg legacy of 18th century, 17th century, actually, English common law, which reinforced patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Which I think is actually the perfect segue to our next question is sort of that history on the legal end of why this is considered different in American law in a lot of different states. And the campaign that you guys have, you know, worked so diligently on is where does this come from? Like, where does this idea that, like, it's okay if you're married, you know, or well, it's different because there's an existing relationship. Like what, especially, you know, sort of this tangent of, you know, English law, where does this come from? So spousal rape exceptions, as I said, are based on 17th century English common law, which held that women essentially gave irrevocable sexual consent when they married. Mm -hmm. That is that women were considered to be essentially the sexual property of their husbands. It wasn't legally rape for a husband to rape his wife, period. And this part of the law lasted really an insanely long time. So in the United States, Nebraska was the first state to, um, to legalize, to equalize the treatment of rape regardless of marital status. And that was in 1976. 
And even after that, change was very slow. So by 1980, only three states had abolished spousal rape exceptions. 15 years later, in 1995, that number had only grown to 17. So 33 states in 1995 still had some form of exception. And in fact, at that time, the model penal code continued to have a complete exception that I, you know, rape was of a spouse was not a crime at all. And in California, which is where I am, the very first effort to repeal the exception was put forward in 1977 and it failed. And the women's movement struggled for decades to simply treat all rape as rape. Before our bill passed in 2021, so this year, AB 1171, there had been at least a dozen failed attempts at this, some of which resulted in incremental improvements, but the basic uh, structure that there was rape and then there was spousal rape remained. And even though our bill was largely successful, there was an amendment that was forced onto the bill at the very last minute that retained an exception that excluded married victims who are too disabled to consent from the protection of the law, effectively denying protection to the most vulnerable victims. And that that exception was driven by the, that amendment was driven by the public defenders. And I'm still, you know, very upset about it. And I'm still, our organization is going to continue to fight to eliminate that exception as well. It's just like baffling, but I mean, you mentioned AB 1171. We want to get into that and what what that law is and, you know, what's in the bill. And can you explain like what it does and what it combats? I know you kind of got into it a little bit, but can we kind of dive deeper into what it what it really accomplished? Yes. So AB 1171 is a bill that was passed by the legislature and signed by Governor Newsom. And it goes into effect in just a couple of weeks on January 1st. And it repeals the crime of, quote unquote, spousal rape and removes it from our books entirely. And this is a big victory for uh, women's rights and for survivors' rights. So now, as a result of our bill, rape is rape, regardless of marital status or any other factor. There's simply um, no legitimate state interest in treating rape differently based on the relationship or the lack of relationship between the victim and the offender period. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, at the end of the very long legislative um, process, an amendment was forced on us that is really terrible and which exempted the rape of a spouse who is too disabled to consent from the definition Hmm. of rape. So, for example, if the victim had a stroke or Alzheimer's, uh, they wouldn't be covered by the protection of the law. This is basically a get out of jail free card That's for insane. men who rape their severely disabled spouses. And so it was insane. a who, huge. Who argued like against this or for having this included? Yeah, like, this I feel happen? like that's such a weird ex- exception to like have in there. If anything, I would think that would be like the basis for the law and everything else would come later on. Yeah, it was a big shock to me and a huge disappointment. And it made me very angry as a disabled woman myself. And as I said, I will be going back to Sacramento to try to eliminate this, you know, very last piece. It was the Public Defenders Association that really demanded this amendment. And a lot of really misinformed things were said. Our legislative advocates fought back very hard. And unfortunately, this, you know, 
resulted in the very most vulnerable victims being left behind and left out of the law. I mean, one of the things we know from research is that disabled women are, you know, many, many more times more likely than non-disabled women to be sexually assaulted. I mean, they are the most vulnerable class of uh, victims. And so it was highly offensive, highly ill-informed. And, you know, I'm still angry about it now. Understandably. Yeah. Well, speaking of sort of the history of these laws, I still can't believe Nebraska was the first state to get in the party here because I just, not the state I would have thought. If I were putting my money on it, I'm shocked that it's Nebraska, but... Regardless, they started this party of getting some of you know these laws into place, but there are definitely other states that need more impactful laws in this arena. What are some of those states? Where does this advocacy you know need to go, and you know which legislatures really need to take some action here? Well, actually, California was one of the worst, so that's one of the reasons that enough is enough made it the focus of our efforts this year. I mean, it's. And it's the largest state and also one of the most backward in this area. It is interesting that Nebraska led the nation and actually eliminated spousal rape exceptions by statute in 1976. But, you know, interestingly, Nebraska has a comparably very progressive view of sexual assault and was in many ways ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons some people think that it led the way is that it had a unicameral that is a single house and nonpartisan legislature, which made it easier, I think, in some ways to pass the legislation. Other states also acted early. Oregon, I think, was the second state. And some of the early states also struck down spousal rape exceptions as violating uh, the Constitution very early. So New York's spousal rape exception was struck down by the courts in 1983. There is still a small handful of states, mostly in the South, that need to come out of the 17th century on this issue. And of course, California, which, you know, still has one exception, the one I mentioned about disabled married spouses. So, you know, we like to think that California is so progressive. And probably if I'd asked you to guess which state led the way, you might even have guessed California. Um, And it is shocking to a lot of California residents how um, not progressive California is in many ways, particularly having to do with women's rights. But, you know, in this case, I think that spousal rape really exposes that fact. Yeah. Pretty sad that California was behind Nebraska by 40 years. I know, like what a random state (laughs) to be the one. I mean, shocking. But um, also kind of looking ahead, like what do voters need to look for or ask for when it comes to electing uh, people into office that can push forward bills and policy that, you know, supports violence against women and, you know, really combating this issue. Like what, as a voter, can you do um, and look for when it comes to this issue? Well, we think that it's really important to concentrate on violence against women at the ballot box. That is that we think that when we go to vote, we should make sexual violence an issue like guns or abortion or health care that is a key issue in determining their vote. And this needs to be, we think, in the top constellation of issues that could disqualify a candidate, in particular for women voters. And I'm actually convinced that until that happens, we're never going to change the high rates of sexual violence and the 
low levels of reporting and accountability. Survivors need to exercise political power and they need to look at candidate stances on issues, specific issues like the spousal rape exception, if there is one in their state, or the Violence Against Women Act, if they are voting on congressional candidates and things of that nature. Totally. And thinking about like some of these policies that have been proposed and maybe not renewed, like the Violence Against Women Act, is there a way for voters to sort of check in on this to find, hey, this candidate, you know, supports XYZ or doesn't support XYZ? Like where where can voters sort of check in on this? Well, we do have a website, which is enoughisenoughvoter.org, and we do feature the candidates that we are opposing in each election cycle with respect to federal elections. And then there are also a number of excellent organizations like the Feminist Majority, the National Organization for Women, the Joyful Heart Foundation, just to give a couple of examples that work really hard on legal reform and are organizations where you can check in to see what the issues are in your area. So we think that it's really important specifically to be holding candidates and public officials accountable when they perpetrate or enable sexual violence and also for their statements and stances on violence against women. Yeah, I mean, it's just such an interesting conversation too because like the age of trump like we kind of mentioned earlier really just like shine this light on how accepted violence against women is and the fact we elected a president who had multiple sexual assault allegations against him why why is this the case why is this you know the culture or the standard and like what has caused this norm um or really what has prevented it from even just disappearing in 2021 i mean right i guess we you know got cuomo out but we literally just had a president for four years who just was terrible towards women. Why, how, how do we fix this? Like, Yeah, it's a great question. So privileged men, whether that's due to being white or being wealthy or being elected to public office, and of course there's a lot of hope between those categories, or a recruited athlete or a famous celebrity um, like Bill Cosby, whatever the basis of that privilege, there's always been a high degree of impunity for sexual violence. And what this has meant for survivors has only very recently come into focus. What is clear is that women and survivors are very angry about this as they should be. Yeah. And I do want to say that this phenomenon isn't limited to the Republicans or to Donald Trump, although Donald Trump is a very extreme example of yeah, this. Totally. Sexual violence. Yeah. Sexual violence and harassment cuts, unfortunately, across all ideological lines, as you know, you mentioned the Cuomo debacle, and I think that really establishes that. As Democrats, and I am a very proud Democrat, capital D, we need to clean our own house. Mm -hmm. And we at Enough is Enough have called out accused Democrats as well as accused Republicans. And that has really, you know, been to the dismay of some of our liberal allies. We are aggressively Mm anti-rapist and anti-harasser unapologetically, regardless of party. Good. Good. Absolutely. (laughs) Which is like, A, men, send at home, retweet, all that stuff. To sort of wrap this up and thinking about the future, what can we do as individuals and as a collective to really change this narrative? Is this more conversations amongst ourselves? Is this you know, advocacy in some way, how can people, you know, get involved to change this path? I know that's going to be a long journey. We're on it. But 
Is there anything that you could really, you know, advise to young people to, to help change this narrative and this path? Well, as I said, voters need to make sexual violence an issue that they consider at the ballot box, just yeah. like other issues they care about, like guns and abortion and health care. It needs to be at the very top of their list of issues that would disqualify a candidate. And that's particularly true for women voters. And doing that, that is exercising political power in that way, works way beyond any single election. So just to give you an example, in the case of the Persky recall, we didn't just remove a bad judge. We created a deep constituency to address sexual and domestic abuse in our county and in our state. We were able to get millions of dollars appropriated, change laws, elect local leaders, you know, that were unrelated to the recall because we voted on that issue and we showed that there could be real electoral power in the survivor vote. And furthermore, and very significantly, a number of people who endorsed Persky lost their elections over that endorsement. That endorsement became a feature of the election campaigns years down the road. Mm -hmm. Support for Persky continues five years later to be a salient reason in our county, which is the second largest in California, for voters to reject a candidate and there's polling that supports that. The recall had very long coattails and built a powerhouse feminist political machine that really dominates our county Democratic Party now. And so if there are more elections decided on this basis, that can happen anywhere. Well, maybe not anywhere, but that can happen a lot of other places, certainly elsewhere in blue states. Totally. And I think the really interesting thing here, too, is to think about the judges that we have deciding some of these cases and a lot of those are elected positions. So mm-hmm. that is definitely something that we will talk more about at a, another point, but it's a really interesting one to, I, I hope people start thinking about that element of everything, but yes. to put the cherry on top for those that want to get involved, those that are interested and enough is enough. Can you give the plug? Where can people, you know, find the org? Where can people find you to learn more? Give us the deets. So I'm very findable. The organization is Enough is Enough Voter, um, and we are findable at, you know, enoughisenoughvoter.org. And I, as I mentioned, I'm a professor at Stanford, so people often find me that way through the Stanford website. And I'm very accessible via email or, you know, can set up Zooms or anything like that if people, you know, want me to come speak to their organization or their, you know, local group of friends about how they can get engaged. That's amazing. amazing. I'm so happy we had this conversation. It's such an important message to uplift, especially yeah, thinking about voting and going into next year and everything. So thank you for coming on and highlighting everything. We really appreciate your time. I am so glad that you invited me. This has been a great conversation. Alrighty then, guys, top stories of the week we're gonna kick it off with a story about guns in america what's new guys that was an interesting (laughs) (laughs) were you expecting that maybe not keeping you on your desk okay so sandy hook families have settled for 73 million dollars with gun maker remington so the families of nine victims of the sandy hook Elementary school shooting have agreed to a $73 million settlement of a lawsuit against the maker of the rifle used to kill. Oh, God. It literally, like, I have a, feels like there's a dire in my heart even just saying this, to kill 20 first graders and six educators in 2012. 
I'm like glad they included that just so it really hits home yeah. for people because oh my god like it literally I just got chills over my, my body just reading that so the case was watched closely by gun control advocates gun rights supporters and manufacturers because of its potential to provide a roadmap for victims of other shootings to sue the makers of bar- firearms which is huge and this is really reminding me of that San Jose um policy that just passed I'll, I'll pull it up in a sec the insurance one the one right. that my friend helped push through my hot boy in politics oh hopefully he doesn't listen okay. to this <laughs> <laughs> no he called himself a hot boy okay it's not me but anyways we'll we'll talk about that bill in just a second because that's also kind of like related here but remington which made the Bushmaster ar-15 style rifle used in the shooting also agreed to allow the families to release numerous documents they obtained during the lawsuit including ones showing how it marketed the weapon the family said and the families and a survivor of the shooting sued remington in 2015 saying the company should have never sold such a dangerous weapon to the public which like a fucking meant to that and they said their focus was on preventing future mass shootings so this is huge veronique de la rosa who six-year-old son noah Oh my God, that's so sad. Was killed in the shooting, said, today is a day of accountability for an industry that has thus far enjoyed operating with immunity and impunity, which is just so accurate. But let's like bring up this bill from San Jose. Shout out, hometown, home city, not really hometown. But so basically recently, San Jose has now become the first city in the nation to mandate gun owners to have liability insurance and pay an annual fee in an effort to curb gun violence. And so council members voted to approve the gun control rules requiring San Jose residents who own guns to pay an annual $25 fee per household, which is also like nothing, but whatever, and purchase gun insurance that specifically covers losses or damages resulting from any negligent or accidental use of the firearm. So that was like the first kind of piece of legislation really in the country that has done something like that. The mayor of San Jose, Sam Licardo, he introduced um, this legislation in 2019 after the mass shooting in Gilroy, which is like right in San Jose. And he said the goal is to mitigate harm inflicted by gun violence and shift the financial burden of gun education and victim services to gun owners instead of all taxpayers, which is a huge, huge step. Hopefully we can get, honestly, Mayor Licardo on here because I would love to talk about this bill mm-hmm. a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll work on that for you guys because it's a super interesting piece of legislation and a topic we haven't even really fully dive in, dived into, right? We, we did a little bit, but the episode that we did with Nico Bakur, who yeah. works for Gipper's Courage, will give you guys like a little bit of an entrance into like the NRA and gun rights in the US and sort of like the classic like stupid questions like what is the second amendment like what is that context like that episode will definitely give you that base this is definitely an issue this is actually one of the issues I vote on personally you know like everyone is sort of like yeah a you know there you know every issue is important in its own right but like there's issues that really get you out to the polls this is definitely one of them for me yeah so I definitely you know we will be covering this you know, from other angles and with other voices as well. So everybody stay tuned. But just sort of to give a little bit more detail as to this particular story involving this lawsuit, the civil court case in Connecticut focused on how the firearm used by the Newtown shooter, which this name is just so, I just can't. The Bushmaster XM15 E2S rifle. I just, 
Okay, that's, I'm just, I'm not even going there. No. It was marketed and alleged it targeted younger at-risk males in marketing and product placement in violent video games. That is so insane. I didn't know they're like really that intricately actually marketing these guns to at-risk males. You're targeting younger at-risk males and marketing these guns to them. At-risk males. Disgusting. At-risk males. What the fuck? What the fuck? Like, literally, I... The level of disturbed I am on so many levels, I, I just, I need to, like, process it. And, like, somebody asked me in a day when I've, like, gone through a ton of different emotions just reading that sentence. Because right. the whole thing is just, like, really... It's hard to talk about. Just, it's a really dark subject. Um, yeah. A-, a thousand percent. And Remington had argued, Remington being the company, the manufacturer, argued that there's no evidence to establish that it's marketing and anything to do with the shooting. The company also said that the lawsuit should have been dismissed because of the federal law that gives broad immunity to the gun industry. <clears throat> and all right. But the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled Remington could be sued under state law over how it marketed the rifle. The gun maker appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. Remington, one of the nation's oldest gun makers, founded in 1816, filed for bankruptcy for a second time in 2020, and its assets were later sold off to several companies. The manufacturer was weighed down by lawsuits and retail sales restrictions following the school shooting. What a shame. Not at all. Four, four insurers for the now bankrupt company agreed to pay the full amount of coverage available, totaling $73 million, the plaintiffs said on this case. Today is not about honoring Ben. Today is about how and why Ben died, said Francine Wheeler, whose six-year-old son was killed in the shooting. Today is about what is right and what is wrong. Today is about the last five minutes of his life, which were tragic, traumatic, and the worst thing that could happen to a child and how they unfolded as they did. Oh, I have chills again. Yeah. So, a dark start to our top stories, but also a little bit of ray of light of hopefully there will be some shifts in accountability in terms of gun manufacturers, gun owners, etc. There is a lot of work to be done, and there yeah. are a but lot I, of powerful money sources that are stopping that from happening. So, yeah, this is definitely something to rally behind in terms of activism. Totally. And I feel like... As, again, dark as this topic is and the story is to open our top stories, I honestly think this is really hopeful that this went the way it did just because of how powerful the NRA really is and how they're constantly winning these battles against, like, gun reform and being held accountable. And I just, like, knowing our justice system, I if somebody had told me about this case before, you know, the settlement even happened, I would have been like, no shot. They're getting their money. Mm-hmm. So I think this is definitely a really good sign, at least just, which is shitty to think that like it could have gone the other way or just like my expectations were for it to go the other way. But nonetheless, it prevailed. So I just think that's really good news and and hopeful when looking at gun reform and just accountability in the future. So yes, but we will move on because Texas has opened its 2022 first primary under very strict voting rules. And if you follow us on TikTok, if you're curious about like what your election dates are in your state, then go comment on our TikTok and we will make a video for you. But we've been covering a lot of states so far, one of them being Texas. And like when I went through those election dates, I was just fucking shook because first of all, the primary voter registration deadline has already passed. It was January 31st when almost every other primary is 
like latest end of March. And it's just so intentional that this primary is so early before anybody's even started to pay attention. It's insane. To the 2022 midterms. So anyways, Texas literally began early voting on Monday under a very rushed rollout of tougher restrictions that has resulted in hundreds of mail ballots getting sent back weeks before the first primary of the country right now for 2022. And the election is the first since Republican Governor Lord Farquaad, Greg Abbott, last fall signed into law. There are sweeping changes to Texas elections. And on Monday, hundreds of polling sites opened in Texas, and there were no reports of major issues as early voting got underway. But hundreds of returned mail ballots and ballot applications in Texas in recent weeks had amounted to a clumsy debut of voting rolls that Republicans have tightened across the U.S. over the past year in this name of election security. That is just fucking bullshit. So, yeah, it's I when I saw looking through these election dates to make this TikTok like for Texas, I was shook. It's so early. It's really, like Arizona, for example, is like August. Like yeah. the range at which these are happening, especially with like redistricting and all these lawsuits based on, you know, gerrymandering and, and whatnot. Like, it's just so crazy that like this one, and of course it's Texas. Of course it's Texas, yeah. which like is definitely a state that matters in, you know, sort of setting the precedent for how a lot of other, you know, primaries are going to potentially go and races are going to go. And like often is sort of that litmus test. Like, Jesus freaking Christ. Like you said, like no one's even paying attention yet unless you're like really into it. Yeah. And that is just like so problematic. And actually to make everyone go like back and listen to our episode with Congressman Swazi, but he like makes a really, really good point about the primaries in general and talking about how like the people in both primaries typically pander to their extremes, like the left extreme, you know, panders to like the extreme left, the conservatives um, or Republicans like pander to the, you know, the the QAnon, extreme conservative, et cetera, whatever, like whatever is going to like get the people that are already rallied sort of even more rallied to like hop out and go. And then by the time you get to the general election, the people that are sort of like in between, which hopefully isn't everyone, everyone like go and, you know, check the dates, et cetera, got to vote in the primary. But like by the time they get there, it's like each side has someone that is like way more extreme than actually representative of the voters or you know the party and it's sort of like how did we get here and often it's the primary that no one's paying attention to so yeah this is sort of like texas i i know we're at a little bit of a struggle point with how early this is and whatnot but like any other state in addition like this is your like flag in the air please mark on your calendars when your primary is and make sure you are prepared go check out those candidates and go and vote because that is going to really really impact what that general election looks like what those candidates totally. what the platform looks like and you have the ability to to make your voice heard and to make sure that something's not so extreme on either side so go yeah. do it if you are a texas listener or honestly if you know friends in texas make sure they are voting if they are registered unfortunately again like you can't vote in this primary if you're not registered as of this moment so but if you are or you know your friends are, check on them, make sure they know that like the primary is now and it's time to start paying attention and to go vote. And just Texas listeners, it's gonna be fucking hard to vote for you guys this year, but vote anyways. It's always worth it and always necessary. So please, please vote. But we are always here for all your voting ballot and political questions. So feel free to slide into our DMs. You can email us at info at girlonthegov.com, comment on our TikToks, whatever it is, however you want to communicate with us, we will answer all of your voting questions because it's crucial. 
It's crucial, especially in fucking Texas. Jesus Christ. But I like that there was like a Texas ish like accent on the end of that one. Did I? Yeah. Okay. Well, my like Yankee view of what a Texas accent is. It's next story though. Yeah, next story. Oh, well, well, well. Pressure has mounted on Congress to curb lawmaker stock trading. Nothing like a little stock trading to to really just get you excited. Stir the pot. <laughs> you know, I'm like, ooh, and numbies. We love some numbies. But anyways, amid a steady drip, this sounds like my shower, <laughs> of damaging headlines, pressure is building for Congress to pass legislation that would curtail lawmakers' ability to speculate on the stock market. Speculate being like participate, like bet. Literally in my head, the stock market is just legalized gambling. So mm-hmm. it just is. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not saying I don't do it, but I'm just saying it is. Mm-hmm. Anyways. <laughs> Trading Trading in Congress has long been criticized by government watchdogs. Surprise, surprise, woof to woof. Who say the access to non-public information creates a temptation for lawmakers to prioritize their own finances over the public good? But public anger has mounted since the first tremors of the pandemic when some lawmakers were caught buying and selling millions of dollars worth of stock after being warned about the coming disruption from the virus. The pandemic's arrival tanked markets and caught many Americans by surprise. Now with the November elections fast approaching and members of both parties embracing reform, congressional leaders are getting on the bandwagon, expressing their willingness to toughen the rules. After a spate of controversies over suspiciously timed trades and undisclosed transactions, a few lawmakers are defending the status quo, raising hopes that a significant ethics package is within reach. But Daddy Ossoff said this. Oh my God, I miss him. I know, I know. I don't want to talk about This it. isn't going to solve all of America's problems, but it's a substantive reform that three-fourths of the country supports. Ossoff, aka Daddy Ossoff, is sponsoring a bill a.k.a. this bill that would require lawmakers and their spouses to sell off stocks or place such assets in a blind trust. Yeah. So Pelosi, which honestly I don't expect this because I feel like she is just probably the ringleader of this effort. (laughs) Nonetheless, she apparently does support strengthening an existing law, the Stock Act, which requires lawmakers to disclose their stock sales and purchases. She has also called for extending stock trading disclosure requirements to members of the judiciary while stiffening penalties for members of Congress who flout the rules. And Pelosi said, it's complicated. What we're trying to build is... All right, Avril. (laughs) What we're trying to build is consensus. Her stance has evolved since December when Pelosi reacted to a question about lawmaker trades by saying there is a free market that members of Congress should be able to participate in. Oh, Nance. I just saw this for you, sister. Um, but she has since pivoted from from that statement and is apparently now supporting this. So drafting the legislation presents a challenge and difficult questions remain, such as whether lawmakers who sell their assets should be required to pay capital gains tax, whether the proposed ban would apply to spouses and children, and whether stocks purchased before serving in Congress would be exempt, but supporters of the effort say the rules need to be as tight as possible, which I completely agree with. I I also, for those listening that are like, what the fuck is the stock market baloney? I do want to just define blind trust because that's a term that's going to like continue to come up in this conversation. According to the interwebs, just to give you sort of the straight, clear, straight and narrow, a blind trust is a financial arrangement in which a person in public office gives the administration of private business interests, aka investing, 
to an independent trust in order to prevent conflict of interest. Under the trust, the owner does not know how the assets are managed. Yeah. And capital gains tax. Capital gains are the profits from the sale of an asset, shares of stock, a piece of land, a business, etc., and are generally considered taxable. So that's there's um, your um, vocabulary lesson for the day. Alrighty. So I'm sure everyone's screens were blown up about Russia all weekend. So <laughs> here we are again. Russia has showed that there are some troops leaving near Ukraine and apparently seeks talks. We'll see. Good old shirtless Putin said Tuesday that Moscow is ready for security talks with the U.S. and NATO as the Russian military announced a partial troop withdrawal from drills near Ukraine. New signs that may suggest a Russian invasion of its neighbor isn't imminent despite snowballing Western fears. Putin said he doesn't want war and called for peaceful discussions over Ukraine's bid to join NATO, which Moscow sees as a major threat to Putin's ego. Sorry, that was an ad lib, but it's just accurate. But concerns remain. NATO and Western government said that they had seen no signs of de-escalation yet as of Tuesday, despite the Russian Defense Ministry's announcement that it is pulling back forces from maneuvers that has heightened concerns about an invasion. Russia gave no details on where the troops were pulling back from or how many. Additionally, the invasion fears grew after Russia amassed more than 130,000 troops near Ukraine in recent weeks and months. Russia denies as any such plans. U.S. and other allies, meanwhile have moved troops and military supplies for Ukraine's western flank to shore up local governments, although not to confront Russian forces. The U.S. and NATO have rejected Moscow's demands to keep Ukraine and other ex-Soviet nations out of the alliance, halt weapons deployments near Russian borders, and roll back forces from Eastern Europe. But Western powers have agreed to discuss other security measures that Russia had previously proposed. Speaking after talks with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Putin said, said Russia is ready to engage in talks on limiting the deployment of intermediate range missiles in Europe, transparency of drills, and other confidence-building measures. He emphasized the need for the West to heed Russia's main demands. I just uh, asked if there could be a war in Europe. Putin said Russia doesn't want it. I don't know. He seems like he wants it. He was like, I, whatever. I mean, let's not forget that he was talking about how nuclearly that's a word that i just created i don't care if it's mm. not nuclearly powerful yeah. russia yeah. is and you know that's that's a moment i will never forget <laughs> i will never forget it. i Mm-mm. never forget ingrained, ingrained maybe we'll like, put that, like beyond bricks. we'll put that on our tiktok at some point this week just for reference if you guys didn't see it but putin was just talking about how everyone should fear Russia and their nuclear powers to spark note it but anyways that's that on that we'll keep you updated on this story as we have been the past few weeks but it's really just this is a roller coaster of emotions this story like every week it's like something new it's like oh shit we're moving troops and we're moving more troops and oh I guess you it's looking pretty good now actually de-escalation possibly oh diplomacy actually that's the approach oh wait no Putin's threatening nuclear powers I just had a light bulb moment what you know who's like like they're like in unison right now of being equally batshit mm. it's Putin and Kanye oh Jesus Christ Kanye the two of them, they're like literally two peas in a pod with this shit. But just the behavior of the roller coaster and the, oh, I want this, no, I don't want that, oh, I'm blah, 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 whatever, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Oh my freaking God. They're both nuts, but like gen- evil geniuses in their own way. And you're like, yeah. what the hell are you two doing? They're giving each other 
you know but man is Kanye entertaining right now I can't lie but anyways that is it for this week those are our top stories and reminder on the housekeeping items you guys if you're 21 and over go get some wines literally four bottles for 29.95 at the link in our episode description so go check that out they're absolutely delicious and they literally just get delivered right to your door and i i can't stand any anymore so link in episode description go get them let us know how you like them event in new york new york city the big apple happening march 12th at y7 hot yoga and politics you guys it'll be like a live podcast show you don't want to miss it someone new zach you guys have not met yet from the next 50s joining us as well as our our in-house favorite brian brian derrick and sarah haig from vote mama who we've also had on the show who is incredible so do not miss it there's tickets also in this episode description and at our website at girlinthegift.com events summer internship girlinthegift.com careers if you need one you can get college credit then please email us we would love to speak with you and if you're not looking for an internship but you want to get more involved in girl in the gov in politics especially during this crucial election year you can join our brand ambassador program and you can sign up also at our website girlinthegov.com resume boosters networking opportunities community building all the things so i think that's it did i just nail that it's looking spick and span in here i think we're ready to send you guys off on your week so thank you for listening subscribe rate review follow us on social media And we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.